Hello everybody and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters and we're doing another ASIPSI conference special. Uh, Martin's joined me again today. Hello Martin. Hello again Brett. It's been a great week. It's, it's been a good week indeed. This is this is our third or fourth, I can't remember now. I think our third. Um, no, this is third, the third, yeah. Third one. So um, we're really pleased to have with us today uh, distinguished Professor Lydia Maraska and I'm going to introduce Lydia. Lydia uh, is a professor at the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at QUT. She has a large number of other roles, uh, including an advisor uh, for the World Health Organization Collaborating Center on Air Quality and Health. She has a vice chancellor fellow position um, at the University of Surrey. Uh, she's received many prizes, including the Eureka Prize for Infectious Diseases Research, and in 2021, she was uh, included in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. That's a, a fantastic achievement. Thank you so much, Lydia, for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. We have the pleasure of talking about the science of air and pathogens and infectious particles um, with Lydia today. And um, look, I might just kick off Lydia, and and perhaps go back a bit and say, do you want to tell us just how did you get involved in, I guess, the science of air and infection risk? Um, how, where, where did you start in this? Well, this started for me in 2003 during SARS-1. Until that point, uh, our laboratory, International Laboratory for Air Quality and Health, um, which has been focused on airborne particles, of course, particles are in the air, not by themselves, so that, that's for air quality. But specific focus has been on particles, but particles, the smallest sizes of particles, which means particles coming mainly from anthropogenic processes and particularly combustion, but also particles formed in the air from gaseous precursors. So it's very complex science, very complex measurements and so on. So this, this has been our focus, but in 2003, during SARS-1 pandemic, I was invited by the WHO to join a team in Hong Kong to explain the mystery of infections in the Amoy Gardens complex of buildings, 20-something buildings, um, and uh, over 300 people infected uh, from one person who spent one night in one of these apartment buildings <laughs> visiting um, his brother. So the WHO had the, a team of epidemiologists, uh, which was trying to resolve this uh, puzzle. They were unable to do this. Um, I remember at the time, Lancet published a paper, uh, and this was a serious paper, in which uh, um, someone proposed that uh, this was because of fast-running rats carrying the virus between the buildings, <laughs> because the point was that there was no direct contact between people from all these 25 uh, apartment buildings. So what happened? Maybe rats started past this, uh, this infection. So the WHO uh, concluded that perhaps aerosol um, scientists, aerosol physicists could help with this, and they were assembling a team. Now, um, I must say that I dread the idea of going to Hong Kong in the midst of that epidemic. Um, <laughs> it was just kind of thinking what excuses would I find that we would study <laughs> from Brisbane and not going there. But at the end, this mission didn't happen because the outbreak was over and the WHO con concluded that there is no evidence on the ground. 
Later studies in which I didn't participate uh, did modeling uh, of uh, what happened in terms of dispersion. It was a complex story there, but it, it was airborne transmission from the bathrooms and then how it followed the uh, spread in those buildings. But this really put my mind uh, into, into, into this topic, and I searched through literature and found at the time three papers published over a span of 60 years on physics of airborne transmission. And then I thought, wow, this is such an important topic and such an interesting topic. So this really what sparked my interest and the steps which follow supplying programs and doing studies. So that was the starting point for me. That's so interesting. So in, in some ways almost, SARS-1 was an opportunity missed because it was over so quickly, then people didn't really start thinking about, I mean, I would say aerosol, but you say particle transmission. And so, you know, it, we didn't start listening to air scientists until, again, relatively recently. It's, it's you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was mostly droplet. And, and yet you all knew that actually it was something different going on here because the rat spreading it certainly wasn't plausible. And how else would one person infect 300 people? Unless he's a politician going to talk to everybody and shaking hands, it's not—it's not happening, is it? So that's that's fascinating. Do you, do you think that actually the fact that we use a different term to you has made a difference? Because we wouldn't have gone—it's—it's. You know, it's, I don't go if I'm looking in a search engine. I don't look for particles. I look for aerosols, and it's different words mean different things to different th people. I mean, we're talking about footwear. In Australia, you talk about thongs. Well, to me, in the UK, a thong is something completely different to a pair of <laughs> flip-flops, which is what thongs actually are. So do you think the terminology has actually been in the way of cooperation and understanding in this area? Well, uh, terminology has been one uh, f uh, aspect of this. and But I must say that I personally didn't realise how big a divider the terminology was, because coming from the, from the uh, angle of science, in the science, in scientific definition, aerosol is uh, there are particles suspended in the air long enough to enable observation and, and measurements. And droplet is a liquid particle. So mm. therefore, there's no the size doesn't come into this. It's the composition. Droplet is a liquid particle. So during the pandemic, I realized that this is this division in the in the medical field, which means aerosol is smaller, droplet is is bigger, with this arbitrary diameter of um, size of five micrometers. Now, yeah. initially, people were almost killing themselves trying to educate each other. And um, um, so I realized at some stage that it's absolutely impossible to achieve any um, compromise on this, whether it's aerosol or it's droplet. And we are telling, physics is telling uh, medical people that it's a continuum, it doesn't make sense, while they learned like this. Um, so the reason I'm using particle is to avoid this exactly problems. And I'm very, very working. It's still particle, it's particle, aerosol is particle, but by avoiding the word aerosol or uh, droplet, it kind of brings everybody into this onto the same plat platform. So so this is the reason. This, that, this is what I've been proposing to the WHO and to the any um, medical public health authorities 
let's talk about droplets this way. Uh, sorry, let's talk about particles this way. This issue of different terminology is not coming into this, and everybody seems to be happy with this. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a sensible way forward. And just so, just on that, then um, talk to us about the science of generating respiratory particles. How do we? Uh, you were going to say aerosolization then. Oh, I was going to say it. No, I, I bit my tongue. I'm going to change. I, I know. I, I, I've tried my best that, so to you've change. Already, my- you've already changed your language. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, talk to us about that, Lydia. Yeah, well, uh, we are still using for the process which occurs, we're still talking aerosolization yeah. because using the term particulation or uh, <laughs> well, generation of particles. I'm trying to be too PC now. <laughs> Well, the, the, pro- the process is extremely well, extremely complicated. On one sense, I'm I'm trying to uh, simplify this when I discuss this to a process which many people understand, which is process of generating particles from a perfume bottle. You press a, uh, and then the particles come, a mist of particles come, or a nebulizer, uh, which many use for all kinds of processing professional fields. The uh, complexity, however, is that in our respiratory tract, we have a number of nebulizers working because we have many different parts of the respiratory tract, starting from bronchi, then uh, larynx, then the mouth. And in some situations, the process is like in the nebulizer, but in other pro- in other parts, the process is a bit different. So, so this there are multiple processes occurring in the respiratory tract. As a result, particles of different sizes are generated. And carrying uh, whatever is on the surface of the lining of these different parts. So if there's a virus or a pathogen, the particles will contain them. And dependently, where the particles are generated and where the virus is located, then it will contain them or not. So, so this is this is a extremely complex science. But another complexity is that we have no way to measure this as it happens in situ down there in the respiratory tract. We can only measure the outcome, the collective outcome of this, when we measure the particles, well, if doing it as close as possible to the emission point, mouse or, or mouse. But we can't, this way, we can only model what happened in which part of the respiratory tract these particles were generated, what happened to them. Let's say if we are talking about particles generating broncholi, the deepest part of the respiratory tract. By the time they are emitted, they've already went through the rest of the respiratory tract. And some of them were deposited size distribution changes. So we can only model this, but we cannot um, measure this in situ. The same problem is that we cannot measure directly the position of particles. We can only model model them and um, measure the total deposition. So what's in health and what's what's uh, in health. Another issue is that this continuous process of inhalation exhalation. So particles move up, particles move down down. So, but uh, so this, um, in terms of comparing the processes of inhalation and exhalation, the difficulties are the same. The challenges are the same. But we can't measure them there. The model for particle inhalation from the air models are much better developed. So there is a holistic model of particle deposition in the entire respiratory tract tree. 
but there are no holistic models yet of particle generation across the whole mm. respiratory mm. tract. Mm. And I was going to ask, do, do, do people generate different, do different people generate different amounts of particles depending on, you know, on their physiology, etc.? Because you hear of these super spreader events, and so is that the fact that they are actually generating more virus or are they actually more efficient at uh, creating aerosols and particles from uh, within their respiratory tract? Well, both, because super super spreader e uh, event could be because there's a super spreader, a person super spreader, mm -hmm. or that because there are conditions for super spreading. So the conditions for super spreading would be uh, the limited ventilation and the time people spend there. So the, per the person themselves uh, wouldn't have to uh, be a super spreader, but the conditions are supportive super spreading. But it could also be a person super spreader. And indeed, this, this all depends on the flow. So, of course, what's on the on the uh, lining of the respiratory tract, but also on the flow. Now, we are all different, physically different, looking at each other, as we mm. look at each other. And the same is with the differences in the respiratory tract in terms of the size of the openings, the, the length. So, and this all has an impact on uh, on the flow, on generation. So, yes, mm. it is very, very dependent okay. on, on, mm. on the person. And presumably also on the activity of the person's undertaking as well, because, so, so, you know, some activities you generate more aerosol. I mean, could you go through what are the most aerosol or particle generating activities? Well, all, the, all respiratory particles lead to particle uh, generation. Uh, mm. The smallest particles and the fewer particles are generated during the breathing. But on the other hand, we do this all the time, mm. 12 times a minute. Mm. Uh, now, the, when we speak, the particles are slightly bigger and more of them, significantly more of them. Uh, they are mainly generated from, from larynx, so upper, uh, slightly upper part of the respiratory tract. A particular activity leading to the highest uh, emissions is singing. So mm. all the studies which conducted uh, this kind of experiments pointed out that singing is a particular uh, activity rich in particle generation, and that's why there have been so many outbreaks uh, during choir practices. Mm. Um, now, in, when we are when um, the in the mouse, there are also when speaking particles are generated, but these particles which generate which are generated from interaction between of the saliva with tongue and uh, teeth and so on, this are usually bigger. These are in the biggest particles. There are fewer of them, but they are bigger. So in that way, all, all the respiratory activities lead to particle generation. Some of them are much more than the others. And the, therefore, dependency on, on the situation, what the venue is used, the risk increases or decreases, depending on what people do. And, and so distance is another one of those key factors relative to the person who is generating the particles and presumably what they're doing to generate those particles. Um, have you got any thoughts about, you know, uh, and I'm not talking about an arbitrary sort of figure here of, of you know, two metres or anything like that, but just, just, just broadly, you know, these particles can go long distances, so they're going to be, can remain suspended in, for long periods of time, can travel long distances. Have you seen that in your work? The, the, the particles, the, the vast majority, vast, vast majority of the particles generated from whichever part of the respiratory tract are small, and they can stay suspended and float in the air 
for long periods of time, long relevant to the uh, duration of how particles spent in indoor environments before something else uh, happens to them. Now, the issue of the distance is very important, but it's important in the same way as distance to any other emission source. So imagine that you are standing close to a car and with an exhaust pipe and you are half a meter, well, you would be suffocating immediately because of these concentrations. If you are standing 10 meters from a car, you can still smell the, uh, the, the emissions, but the concentrations is smaller because of the dispersion. So the same uh, principle applies to a human as, an, uh, as a source. So if we are very close to somebody, so then it's the concentration of, of all the particles. If we are at a distance, concentrations are lower because dilution already took place. Well, in addition, in the proximity to a person, there is still um, presence of these very large particles, uh, which can be inhaled before they drop to the ground. Um, by gravity. So mm. the concentration of everything is the highest in the proximity to the source, and therefore that's where the risk is the, is the highest. And also, this is the range where the ventilation yet doesn't have the same effect as at larger distances, because it is before the, really, that's that, that first moment before ventilation really managed to dilute and remove these particles yeah okay so i guess the ventilation side becomes even more important when you think about a room that's concentrated with particles that is then someone is exposed to that or that it it either enters the room or whatever it might be um that's right, yeah. Yeah. So, so so ventilation in the in the sense of any interior it's a it's a key element of reducing the risk and uh, removing the virus but in that proximity, immediate proximity, ventilation may not be sufficient because we are too close to, to the source. Mm. And now you ask whether uh, whether this is uh, arbitrary. Well, we published uh, a paper recently on this uh, and calculated the risk dependently on the um, uh, on the distance and duration and how quickly um, a person can inhale. Um, um, uh, infectious quanta dependently on this factor. So we published, we published this for, um, that was for the previous, uh, for the wild type of virus, but this could, this, the same principle can be used for, for Delta or any other uh, variant. We'll, um, we'll put some of the references to, to your papers, Lydia, on our podcast website as well, so that people can uh, have a read in a bit more detail. Um, I feel like I'm going to hog, hog, keep hogging the I questions. Know, I, know, <laughs> the I, know, I know, well, I feel the same thing. I mean, okay, so uh, what I want to ask about is, you, you know, just breathing quietly then, you generate smaller particles. Are they more likely, they're, they're likely then to hang around in the air for quite some time? So, you know, the, the people talk about, oh, if you're talking loudly and singing, you're generating a large droplets, but they, they'll fall. But actually... Quite a few people in an enclosed space breathing quietly are still going to then generate and quite a large number of particles, which actually will remain suspended in the air for some time. Am I feeling the right thing there? So yeah, just yeah, keeping quiet and you know it isn't necessarily such a great thing either. Well, that, that, that's exactly right. We exhale particles all the time, even so at a, a lower quantities. Uh, but if another person sharing the space inhales these particles for a prolonged period of time, it's likely that the person will uh, inhale 
infectious dose, which means they can be infected. There have been, been studies in the past, um, several studies published on the infections on planes, uh, and mm. that was during a long-term long -term flight. So in this case, the issue was that those infected persons sitting somewhere and then unidirectional flow towards the usually towards the back of the plane, and then they trace the infections with the airflow. So in this case, well, those people could have been speaking, but uh, it could have been the issue that long duration of the flight and inhalation of this air with the uh, exhaled um, particles as a result of breathing was, uh, was the reason for the infections. Okay, so don't sit towards the back is what you think. <laughs> Sorry? Don't sit at the back. Don't sit at the back is what you're saying. Right? <laughs> well, there are the, the, the designs of the um, the airlines now are looking very very closely at the designs of the ventilation systems, and apparently they are trying to um, do it such that it's not flowing between the between the passengers but taking upwards. But exactly yeah, okay. how it, how it goes. But uh, but this is an industry which really took took this seriously and and works very seriously to, to improve the flow direction. Do you know, I've sat on plenty of, flat, plenty of flights up until recently, of course, but... Um, at the front, though, back. Oh, not always at the front, Martin. <laughs> um, and, and um, you know, you hear people coughing and spluttering sometimes on the plane. I think I had those little ventilation things above my head that blow air out, and I thought to myself, should I actually have this on, um, trying to blow stuff away from me or am I actually just getting air that's blown on me that's full of infectious particles um I, I, I don't know the answer to that I don't know it's a, it's a bit of a left field question there for you Lydia but but what would you do if you're on a plane actually I, I would open this because anything which comes down to the cabin it went through the filtration system planes mm. have so planes take air from the cabin, they pass it through the filtration system, and then before bringing it back to the cabin. So the chances that there is something that the virus is coming from this uh, um, this this little thing which you open is, is very low. Yeah, so okay. indeed, if you are, this is almost like personal ventilation if you use this air which is flowing. I'm blasting that on my next plane trip whenever that is. Uh, Lydia, yeah. just going back yeah, to that. Whenever, yeah. Whenever that is, yeah. I'm just going back to that sort of idea of um, people generating particles, uh, talking, speaking, um, and, and the concept of sort of source control. So, you know, we sometimes slap um, surgical masks on, on people for a bit of source control, um, knowing obviously that they haven't got the seal, haven't got the protection of, of N95s. But it's kind of in reverse because it's source control. And I see that things like N95 P2s are not tested for source control. Um, do you have any thoughts on the, on, on the value of uh, surgical masks or, or N95s for the purposes of source control? Well, this discussion is raging about uh, um, about source control, about and everybody would like to have a magical number. The number is whatever percentage of uh, removal in terms of source control. Uh, whatever you do, the issue is that uh, it controls source to an extent. It reduces the risk, but doesn't eliminate the risk. It is still individual because no matter what, the question is how well the masks are fitted and they are test fitted and so on, but still uh, the, the faces, the um, uh, shape of the faces is varies. Mm. And uh, sometimes that, that fit for all kinds of reasons is, is not good. But in general, 
it does control and does reduce the risk. We've uh, we've conducted studies that was uh, well a few years ago, um, not on the uh, not on viruses, but on bacteria pseudomonas. So this was the study in which we had a, a group of um, cystic fibrosis people who are frequently infected with pseudomonas, uh, and the, and it's extremely important to control these emissions because. Uh, this is a potentially life-threatening disease uh, for, for these people. So the question was whether wearing uh, when the, when the people come to the uh, to the clinic to the uh, to the medical um, facilities whether wearing masks helps in terms of control. Uh, so uh, we've done studies in a uh, the. Um, experimental tunnel which we designed for this purpose and where we did all of our, our studies and the group of people were wearing both um, surgical masks and uh, n95 masks well of course uh, in this situation the masks were fitted professionally because they were pro- professional healthcare workers involved in the study so we're helping them yeah. with this but what we've shown that the degree of control well, it wasn't 100%, but was very high and comparable between both um, surgical and N95 in terms of controlling emissions of pseudomonas as a measured downstream the mm. flow. Um, surgical masks, uh, of course, are more acceptable in this community situation. Yeah. So this is not something, it is, it's not something which uh, we would say, well, this is a solution for um, application set of medical facilities. But when we are talking about community transmission and people yeah. were in the community reducing the risk, so yeah. masks are a good measure of doing this. Yeah. And the, big, the biggest issue is whether they work or not, how, what the fit is and what people do about this. And I must say that this... Um, uh, well, uh, was my pet interest before the pandemic, watching what people do with masks. Because if you, um, for, well, for years, going to, the, to, to many Asian countries in which uh, wearing masks was not only socially acceptable since SARS-1, but it was very common. Sometimes I couldn't mm. tell what is the reason why people are wearing the mask because it didn't seem to be any pollution source, like pollution, bushfire, or whatever. Um, there, there didn't seem to be infection risk if the person was, let's say, walking by himself once I've seen in a um, ski resort. There were no other people around. So the, there were lots of questions, but there were many situations that I was watching people on the planes, people in situations where there were high concentrations, like in, in the um, Buddhist temples, where there's high concentration of um, um, incense smoke. Mm. And people wear masks to protect themselves, but the mask is hanging below the nose. <laughs> well, so, 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 so this is really the issue, how you wear the mask. Mm. And, and this is the key element. They, of course, they will not work if they are not worn properly. I've avoided using the, um, the term droplet for some time now. Um, but I, I wonder, and look, we need to change all that um, in in relevant documents, and and, and that will come with time. I, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I hope and believe that that to be true. But um, what would you like to see, by way of terminology, um, to to describe this route of airborne pathogen transmission? Um, would it be this this terminology that you're using around? 
particles? Is that is that the way forward? So I'm just thinking about how did they transpire when we rewrite all these textbooks that needs to happen in across the world, um, when we get rid of the term droplet, we're still going to have infections and various things transmitted via direct contact and ingestion and injection. Um, how would you like to see that described in terms of the, the risk of uh, inhalation of particles? Well, I think particle makes most sense and it's understood by everybody. I remember at the beginning of, uh, of the pandemic where I was uh, interviewed by journalists, the question is, what's, what's aerosol? And actually mm -hmm. step back when... Um, giving lectures to my students, not about necessarily infection control, but in general about uh, about particles in the air. So introducing the manage aerosol. So how do you understand aerosol? And to every to, to students normally, uh, uh, the first was aerosol in aerosol spray can. So mm. therefore, this immediately there's that confusion. When we are talking about the particle, well, it's a small object and that everybody understands much better by intuition. So mm. I think sticking to the term particle removes the different connotations this term had in different areas of, uh, of science, medicine, and so on. So we are talking about inhalation. The focus is airborne transmission is inhalation of particles anywhere in the space. Thinking about other particles, in the UK we're about to enter what traditionally would be norovirus season. And I've read papers saying you can find norovirus genomes kicking around in the air if people are symptomatic. Do you, do you think that particle route is significant for something like norovirus? Has, have there been many studies done on that? Because we tend to think of it as contactless surfaces, which you then manage to put into your gastroenteric tract. But do you think that air is a possible route of transmission? Because I know if you go to Scandinavia, if there's norovirus around, they wear masks. But here mm. in the UK, we don't wear masks for norovirus. And you know, just on that point too, Martin. You know, if you you're working as a nurse, if you if someone was vomiting uh, with norovirus uh, in the room that you walked into, you know, there's a pretty good chance that you were going to get sick. Um, and yet, the textbook would tell us it's contact and and droplets. So it's kind of like another. Uh, Another example, I guess, yeah. So, yeah, I'd be really interested to see what Lydia thinks about that. If, if it's a respiratory virus uh, and it comes from the nose and mouth, it is in the air before it is anywhere else. So it is airborne. Hmm. Uh, yes. It's not a respiratory virus, no. though, but it is emitted from the body with quite some force. Force, know, from yeah. Experience. <laughs> so you, you've got uh, you know, vomit coming from the lower gastro, well, the upper gastroenteric tract, uh, but it's coming up with, with the force with and yeah. venom. That's that force is generation introduce introduction of the particles into the air. Yeah, mm. yeah. It could well be a neglected. I just wonder neglected if it's been area. studied though. And, yeah, I just wonder if that's been studied. Yeah, I've seen studies on this topic. Yes, mm. we'll have to explore that more in a future podcast. I think, man. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Lydia, how have you managed to influence international guidance? Because it's it's still at the beginning of the pandemic. It was very much focused on droplets still, and you know, and aerosol for aerosol generating procedures or what you want to call them, but mostly on droplet at the beginning. And do you think that's because we potentially didn't learn the lessons that were in front of us for SARS one, or because there there has been some changes in international guidelines recently, but it's it's taken a while, hasn't it? You know, how, how have you managed to influence things? 
Well, uh, well, the reason for this was it's a complexity of all kinds of problems, all dogmas, uh, perceptions, politics, and so on. There are papers and books written on, on this topic, and this issue still hasn't completely gone. But really, and the, so the, for me, the starting point to, to really go and fight for this was the statements coming, tweets coming from the uh, WHO uh, at the end of March last year saying that the virus is not airborne. Well, how wrong can you be? And and if it was just an academic discussion, all right, let it let it be. But it wasn't an academic discussion. If this were, if, if people were mis- misled, this increased in the uh, resulted in the increase of number of cases and deaths. So this for me was really a call to arms to to do something about this. And that's how step by step I organized first the smaller group and then the bigger group and through all kinds of problems, pushbacks and so on. We published the beginning of uh, July last year a paper in the Journal of um, uh, Clinical Infectious Diseases which called for the WHO and national health, um, public health, uh, national public health organizations to accept airborne transmission and do something about it. And the following day, the WHO accepted it, accepted it with some qualifiers that say that it's an emerging evidence for emerging. Yeah, not that emerging, is it, really? That's right. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult to retract from a position you've taken. That's right, yeah. I, I understand this being being in the position of the WHO, being in the position of the governments. Uh, they can't say easily we were wrong. Uh, there has to be a process to, to do this U-turn. And this process has slowly been happening. So over this period of time since July last year until, until now, WHO was slowly in, improving the wording. It's still far from perfect, but, but sufficient for the uh, national public health authorities to start acting on this. And different countries are more advanced in this Others are less. I think UK is progressing very well in terms of recommendations. I wish I could say the same about Australia, but I can't. So there's still some way to go. There is still some way to go, Um, indeed. Um, I guess just to wrap up, Lydia, um, talking about way to go, um, what what do you see, you know, in terms of your research um, and where, where, where do you see... Your plans, your big, your big sort of ticket items that you want to try and address uh, in the next perhaps few years. Um, what do you see as the priorities? Well, the main priority, uh, the biggest priority, is not just talking about, of course, not this virus, not viruses, uh, but in general about about clean indoor air, because we can't look at one individual aspect of indoor air being an infection prevention and isolated from other factors. It all works together. We have a system. We have a complex building system. In that system, on the one hand, we've got emissions of all kinds of pollutants, including uh, particles from respiratory activities. And these pollutants uh, have to be removed to keep us healthy. On the other hand, we've got penetration of, of pollutants from outside, be it urban traffic, be it bushfires. So we need to make sure that people are not exposed to these pollutants. 
Um, now, there's also the issue interface between indoor outdoor in terms of temperature and keeping thermal comfort. So we could say, say, well, open the window if it's too cold or too hot. We can't just open the window. We need to condition the air to the right temperature. So that's another aspect of this. And doing all of these things in a in a way which is healthy, we would like to be able to open window when we can, but close the window when it's not safe, when the temperature is, 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 is um, not supportive for this, and do it in a way that we use as little energy as possible. Because right now, buildings um, are well one of the biggest cons- consumers of energy. So we can't increase this. So there are technologies existing, lots of different technologies. There's scientific understanding of all these processes. But bringing it all together such that we, the buildings of the future will be protecting us all of the, from all of this, keeping us healthy in an edge and energy efficient way. So this is this is uh, fascinating scientific technological uh, challenge bringing this two system together. But for this to happen, so it's implemented, there's one key point. Regulatory framework must change to enable application of this. Because if there's the smallest increase in cost of anything, uh, that initial cost, it will be chopped if the regulatory framework doesn't green, give green light and actually enforces this. So, and this is changing this regulatory framework. It's a biggest trend. It's a jungle, really. So that's something which we need to work together as experts to into technologies and science, but also to influence the regulatory framework. That's uh, a great way to to wrap up, uh, Lydia, uh, and fully supportive of that uh, that uh, approach. Uh, look, it's been an absolutely fascinating uh, discussion. I. W- as I say, I think I say it's every podcast, but this one in particular. Um, about, I, I, yeah, it's I, been I, amazing. It's been a great, great chat. I hope that um, those listening really um, appreciated uh, Lydia's time and, and, and insights into this uh, so that we could continue to advance this, um, the key messages from this um, and, and work, as Lydia suggests, collaboratively uh, with a whole range of diff- different disciplines to, to advance the ultimate goal here. Um, so thank you so much, Lydia, for your time. We really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We do have one more um, podcast from our SIPSI conference special, which will go live next week. Uh, thanks again for everyone listening, and thanks, Lydia. Thank you.